Hello, hello. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Bridge. This is an interview series by Talent at Web3, where we speak with Web3 founders in Asia, ANZ, to understand why they're building in Web3. My name is Nigel, and today we have Elston with us today uh, talking about what he's building in Web3. Looking forward uh, to understand more. Hey, Elston, how are you? Hey, Nigel. Thanks for having me on the series. Looking forward to share a little bit more about what we're doing at Atlas. Awesome. And yes, looking forward to learn more. Before we get right into it, uh, Elson, I would love to know and understand what is your Web3 origin story, especially for those people who are uh, yeah, not, not very aware of Web3 as well. Sure. Um, I think this kind of goes back to 2017. Um, I was reading the news and I came across an article reading that there were pictures of cats selling for a few thousand dollars on the way to internet. So I was like, interesting, what's this? And I think for those of us who are in the space, this is referring to CryptoKitties, where basically these are in those times like NFTs, basically images selling for a few thousand dollars. Um, I think that just intrigued me, right? Because we have known that digital content um, is monetizable, but just maybe the imagery of cats just really, really intrigued me. Um, so yeah, since then, you know, always heard about blockchain and on and off, kind of read, read up about it, interacted with it myself. And across the years, had a couple of friends then join unknown startups, right? At the time, they were like, oh, what's this company they're joining Coinbase? What's this company they're joining Binance? Interesting. Um, and I think since then, just slowly went down the, the rabbit hole. And things really started gaining momentum in V2019 where I started, I started chatting a lot more with some of my other friends, got more involved in the community. And me and one of my co-founders, Henry, we did a few startups together. And that's kind of how we started entering into the Web3 space through GameFi. And yeah, since then, it's been the last one year, one year plus, and building Atlas. And man, so much has happened over the last one year plus. Before Atlas, uh, and Web3, what were you doing? So I was a product manager and I've always been in the tech space. So kind of spent time in e-commerce, spent um, e-commerce in China actually, spent time at Airbnb, spent time at Grab. So fairly been in the space in, in Web2 tech, but always had intrigue and interest in Web3. So, you know, read up a lot of um, like how blockchain works, and reading a lot more about the stories of, let's say, the Winklevoss twins, listening yeah. and like, reading about like, how Mount Gox happened. Um, so a lot of like backstory. And definitely you can't you know, escape the whole Bitcoin white people when it came up, hearing our Vitalik. So I was in Web2, but I think, you know, always had a lot of interest into what's happening in the space. Got it. Was there anything in particular that gave you the signal to say, now's the moment to jump into Web3? And just to add a little bit more color to that, when I was entering in Web3, um, there was a lot of doubt. And this was in 2021 already, mm -hmm. right? Like, um, this is a scam, what are NFTs, uh, even about Cox, right, blowing up. So there were a lot of noise about Web3. Mm -hmm. So for somebody like you, who, as you mentioned, have been around very practical, I'd say, Web2 experience, um, what allows you to say, hey, okay, this is the, this is the time uh, it, Web3 makes sense? Initially, you know, after the whole 
um, rabbit hole with NFTs in, in CryptoKitties and some, you know, small investments in like, um, early tokens. Um, it was very <clears throat> casual reading about it, chatting with friends. I think where things really took a serious turn was in late 2019, where me and a couple of my co-founders just started dabbling in the space. Um, and you know, we have explored many existing solutions, right? Um, we started by looking at, Hey, is there a world where we can build a staking pool? Can we issue interest-free education loans powered by crypto? Can we do better KYC authentication? And we really came to the consensus of games. And the rationale was that we looked at web two, right? Let's, we look at App Store and Play Store. In the last 10 years, games always ranked top three in the genre of app downloads. When we looked at month-to-month month downloads, it was always the top three genre. So it gave us validation that there is a historic and also monthly renewed interest in the space. So the, the best way that it's known to us is, is just build and test. Um, also because with my co-founder Henry, we've done a number of startups together. So yeah, we just built, launch, and I think we it was the right time, to be honest. And things picked up from there. So it was pretty serendipitous. We didn't expect to go out, do a big fundraise or anything. So that was kind of like how things took traction. What really gave us the faith and momentum was such big technological tectonic shifts happens in, in decades, right? It doesn't happen every one or two years. Um, from the steam revolution, um, industrial engines, all the way to, let's say, the internet, to mobile. And since, you know, this angle here uh, for this series is more of like the people who are thinking of venturing into the space, um, we can control how hard we work, we can control the type of companies we want to work for, but we can't control how the industry shifts. And this happens every like, 10 to 12 years. So I didn't want to miss that opportunity. And maybe also because, you know, we feel at, at our stage, we're able to take on more risk. Um, and naturally, you know, risk tolerance is slightly correlated with, with years in, 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 the, in the workforce. So we felt that this was the right time to, to make the punch. And yeah, since building of the MVP, things got traction really quickly. Within three months, we managed to close our initial seed race. Um, thankfully, we've managed to secure really, really nice and cooperative investors. So uh, we're funded by Sequoia, Dragonfly Capital, and Makers Fund. So really a strong Web2 VC, a Web3 VC, and a gaming fund. We raised just under 10 million at the start of 2022. And since then, even though it's only been a short 12, 13 months, it's probably felt like it's, it's five years. Yeah, it's definitely, crypto years is definitely different. It hits you differently, for sure. Um, so the space you're building in is gaming, just to be clear. Is there any specific area in gaming that you're focusing on? So Atlas started as a casual games aggregator. Mm. We put together, the first version of it, we put together five different casual games, added a crypto rewards platform, we added meta mechanics like wheels, um, Wheel of Fortune, um, other mini games. Since then, we have had quite an interesting story. Um, it started as a pure B2C consumer-facing product, of course, with the whole wave of GameFi. We've also slowly realized that a lot of the demand that we've got from partnerships and other existing partners is some of our security solutions. Um, as we were trying to build consumer trust and consumer adoption ourselves, we realized that we were building a lot of pain points for other game studios, other Web3 projects. So we started modularizing a lot of our features and kind of like branching it out for like more of a B2B use case. And what really caught us is that 
the security and integrity space is something that is very core to the adoption of any new industry. So I would say over the last 12 months, it was 100% gains. Since then, we have dabbled a lot into security use cases. And now we have mainly two verticals. We have a gaming arm and also a, a security arm. Ah, interesting. So Ethos is the game. Is, the, is it also Ethos for the security arm? Right now, it's still under the brand, uh, the same F, <coughs> same access branding. Um, mm-hmm. But we're slowly going to be doing a bit of like corporate branding just to segment these two verticals a bit clearer. Just um, the use cases and also the target audience is slightly different. Got it. Interesting. Um, so, and for the gaming arm, are you still B2C? Meaning you're still creating or either creating or aggregating those apps and creating the platform? Or um, is it also a little bit different now? We are B2C, but I would say there's also an element of B2B2C. So for example, one of our flagship game is called Battle Showdown. This is a Web3 version of Smash Bros. Uh, for those of us who are you know, familiar with Smash Bros, it is a accumulation of IP and they play in a side-scroll um, um, fighter game, right? Uh, what we've done is that take the Web3 spin on it. So we currently have 30 plus projects, Web3 projects and some Web2 projects. And it's the accumulation of different IP in this side-scroll um, fighter game, fighter slash um, shooter game. So it is serving the end user or your go-through project. So let's say instead of trying to acquire 10,000 users ourselves, we work mm-hmm. with one popular NFT project and they bring their community over. So it's a lot more um, scalable. And if you think of it in, in Web2 terms, it's a bit like Avengers, right? They took standalone um, superhero movies, pulled them together, and the dynamics became a lot more different. We want to be able to do that for Web3, especially because IP is a lot more fluid in Web3. Um, so that is one of the game. We have a few other standalone games that we have like since taken out from Atlas and launched them um, on its own. So yeah, it is still mainly B2C, but we're also quite heavy on like partnership and the B2B2C angle. Got it. Okay. Um, have, would love to deep dive on each of those, Ethos and the security product. Um, but before that, taking a step back, after these 12 months of exploring, can you articulate what, what exactly you're trying to solve then? Is it creating the next big hit game? Um, or is it solving for the migration of these gaming studios to, to Web3? Yeah, I think it's so good to kind of take perspective of things right now. Mm. Now, at this time, it's a little bit like year 2000s of the internet or year 2010 of the mobile revolution. If you look at total number of active wallets on a daily basis playing a blockchain game, let's say we take November 2022. Uh, I don't know, Nigel, you want to take a guess? How many active wallets on a daily basis are plugged into a blockchain game? On a daily basis, maybe at most 50 to 100,000, maybe 100,000 max. Okay, it's a fairly realistic uh, estimation. Mm-hmm. I've heard people say like five or like 50 million. Um, it's actually closer to around 800, 900,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, you know, you could account for like duplicate users duplicate, and all that. Yeah. But that is the whole Web3 gaming space right now, just under a million. If you compare to a Web2 game, let's say you take um, Apex Legend that just launched recently, their pre-registration had 15 million downloads. So <laughs> one game, one studio is at 15 million pre-reg. And the whole of Web3 Gaming is at just under a million. So based on the industry stage or so, the kind of like approach that startups, or at least how Atlas approaches it also be, is, is different, right? Instead of saying, hey, can we be that kid game to try and capture all 100% of these billion users? How can we be, how can we position the company in the right place 
that helps more people to be onboarded in the space, both from a game studio perspective or a user or business perspective. So I would say we're less on just trying to build the game to kind of like dominate market share and that million users. But how do we, let's say, create games that are at the intersection that help bridge web to the web three? And also from the B2B angle, how can we provide our modular, modular services to other game studios, other partners to help us, you know, improve adoption? So I would say that's kind of like where we will uh, position ourselves using a very common example. Um, let's say in Singapore, right? We have Sentosa, which is a, for those who are not familiar, it's a standalone island that's like very nicely decorated. It's a lot of like resorts and, and beaches. If the bridge wasn't steady, if we didn't have like monorails, we didn't have escalators, it wouldn't be able to, you know, bridge people across no matter how fancy or how much you decorate it, right? So we think that the value right now is really be in, um, that bridge to help us ease in adoption. Interesting. Why? why not focus on capturing the market share first and focus on onboarding first? Is there a particular reason why you think this is the right way to do it first? Yeah, I think one, just the, the time is still really, really early. So um, I think it makes a lot more, both from an economical sense, but also what appeals more to us as a company, right? Are we happy with just, you know, making maybe like 10,000 users like really, really rich and, and just walk away with money because that way we were just went with like a DeFi product, right? Um, but we wanted to go with something that's a lot more mass market and something that appeals more to, you know, the mission. And then often we say in the company, how can we build products that can help bridge the next billion? Uh, and that, even though it's a very, very big number, um, it sets the context of how we should think about products, how we should think about our initiatives, right? We have to work on things that scale, skills, rather than just, you know, building for like a four digit user. Um, and also coming from a Web2 background, we've kind of seen how Web2 technologies have left, have left people behind. For example, previously at my role at Grab, you have seen how a e-payment solution or even, you know, being a driver on the Grab app allowed someone who was in rural Philippines, rural Indonesia, kind of like make ends meet and employ digital solutions to, let's say, receiving payments. So even at today's um, stage, if we look at less developed country, credit adoption or like credit card adoption is still at like 40-50%. Imagine if like the Web3 wave comes, like how many more people will be left behind? So a little bit more from the team and the company mission, we're a little bit more interested in hey, how can some of our products you know, make the world slightly a, a more efficient place rather than just can we build something that makes like 10,000 people like rich or, or you know have a lot of fun, right? So I think that's kind of like how we, we think about the culture and the direction of the company. Audit. Do you think this is the harder path? Because at least education in general had right has a lot more steps. Like educating somebody from Web two all the way to Web three and everything in between of that will take a lot more time. Uh, at least in my opinion, it might take a lot more time uh, to get traction. Um, is is this the same experience that you've had so far with regard to Ethless, or um, is is it a completely different? Uh, experience. Yeah. So yeah, that's a great question. Um, if you look at it from a, when the internet first came out, when first like uh, websites first came out, game use case was also kind of the ones that really propelled the adoption of it. Even if you look at mobile adoption, gaming use cases were kind of like the, the early few um, genres that really took off, right? Um, for those of us who are still familiar, even when we had our Nokia phones, the thing that people remember most was like the bounce game. 
right? That was like just really, really cool to be able to have like a small little handheld device and you can entertain yourself. Um, so we see history repeating even into Web3. And the reason why we chose games is it was the most common and lowest denominator for adoption. You know, in the Web3 space, there's many ways to enable adoption. You have Brave Browser, which, you know, kind of um, makes it easier for it to like, surf the web. And of course, there's that whole uh, rev share concept. You have the whole NFT way. You have like exchanges and tokens. Um, you have DeFi. And then there's games, right? We think that games is the one that's the lowest common denominator. Just it fulfills our mission of bridging the next billion a lot easier. And I think, you know, here's the proof in the pudding. Even in a bear market right now, more than half of on-chain transactions belongs to gaming use cases. So even in the bear market, games is still the predominant use case. If you reflect that over the last two recessions, games is a you know daily necessity that's recession proof. So I think that gives us strong conviction that you know, games can be a much better tool of adoption, medium of adoption than other use cases. Uh, last question before we pause for a break. Why do you think yeah. games has been the common denominator so far? What about games uh, makes people just try things? Yeah. I would say it goes back to just human nature, right? Um, what are the different barriers of entry, right? You have like knowledge, time, understanding of things and like complexity. Games is just called the human nature of like entertainment, relaxation, and it's just like mindless, um, you know? So I think in that regard, at the end of the day, whether it's Web 2 or Web 3, is just different technology. The end user is still, you know, one of us. So I think that kind of like resonates well with people. Um, for example, recently we've launched a like mini side game, right? In the previous game I mentioned, Battle Showdown is a Web3 version of Smash Bros. We built a little tongue-in-cheek story mode um, depicting SPF and CZ. So um, the whole FTX saga, uh, you can check it out at battleshowdown.com. Uh, there's a story mode. And we're like, okay, all of this is happening and unwinding on, on crypto Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm sure Nigel, you, you were like, that one week is the week that I never touched like Spotify, Netflix, or Disney Plus. I was just on Twitter. So entertaining. It was so entertaining. Yeah. Um, but of course, not undermine the severity of it. But we said, hey, can we use games to, to educate the masses? So we built a little story mode to kind of like use that as a way to educate people about it. And for those crypto folks, you can see a lot of small little like hidden nuggets within the game. Um, definitely urge everybody to check it out. But that has also given us validation that that gaming use case is popular um, and some quick stats right we built it in three days we launched um, like some of like the PR news publications picked us up we were featured on like Bazinga on Yahoo Finance and I think in just three days we've managed to get more than a million impressions so I think it's also it's a good testament to users um, relatableness and also interest in the space got it awesome uh, would love to dive in to that more uh, but before that uh, let's pause for sponsors for this podcast, and then we'll be back to talk about uh, Ethless and everything else that they're building. Cool. Thanks, Alson. Super interesting so far. I can't wait to deep dive. Uh, my plan for the next half is to really um, double click on Ethless, the game, uh, the B2C game, and then the security company that you're building, or the security arm that you're building. Is that okay to deep dive into that, or are there things that you don't want to speak more about? Huh? I think both is fine. Uh, maybe. Because the security arm is something that's a bit new, it'd be great if you know we can spend like probably like equal time on, on both parts. 
Will do. Sounds good. Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, okay, cool. I'll kick off. Um, I'll kick off the next half with like, what are, what about games? Can Web three bring in differently? Like, why do you think Web three uh, can make games different such that mm-hmm. it's like a ten x difference? People are willing to try it, etc. Uh, and then I'll talk about ethos, uh, and then I'll uh, for a few questions, and then I'll skip to uh, the security company, and I'll, I'll try to be very specific, like what exactly are you building? Uh, why is this interesting? Why would Web two com- Why would Web two people be interested about this? Uh, these specific products, what are the KPIs looking for, etc. Um, and then we'll we'll end the we'll end the chat with like the normal stuff, like how do people get in touch? Uh, how do people get involved, etc. Sounds good. Good. Cool. Okay, I'll do a quick countdown and then I'll I'll cut in as uh, with the questions. Sure. Cool. Um, three, two, one. Hello, welcome back. Those were our sponsors. Thank you very much. You you made the series happen. Getting back to Elston, Eflas, and everything that they're building. We were talking about games. Uh, Elston, to cap off the discussion, what what do you think is Web3 bringing to gaming that is so unique that people should should try it? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, most of us kind of got introduced to Web3 gaming through the whole play to end wave, right? Um, mm. Those were the days of Axis when you know, the marketing message was quit your job, earn a thousand bucks a month, and you, know, you get paid for doing something that you enjoy. Um, looking back, I think that if it didn't happen this way, people wouldn't be interested in the space. Um, this was quote unquote a necessary evil, just like when Uber wanted to the first launch a right hailing business or when um, delivery hero wanted to launch a new uh, marketplace service, right? You have to have, have those like initial incentives to kickstart the industry. Um, looking back, you know, the writings was always on the wall. It was never ever going to be sustainable, but that has made us realize, okay, this space is worth paying attention to, but from a first principles point of view, like what really is worthwhile here, right? To, to Nigel's question. I think for us at Atlas, the main thing that really resonates is this concept of interoperability and Battle Shutdown is a testament to that. How anybody can, any project can come to us, work with us and incorporate their IP within the game and their users can come and authenticate their wallets. If we show that they have proof of a certain asset, the character becomes unlocked and that really opens up another world, right? That's when instead of Smash Bros where the 50 characters are predefined, you can actually have a world where one day a, a CryptoPunk fights against a Basie, fights against a Como NFT. And I think that just makes everything a lot more interesting. But on the interval piece, what I've shared, that is just like sharing of IP, right? Being able to aggregate different IP within the game. If you think about it from a deeper mechanics perspective, um, how do you bring over progression? How do you bring over your AR? How do you bring over your game stats across games? Or let's say when you play Maple Story and you've you know spent like a few hundred dollars buying skins and all that, when the game decides to retire, or like how do you bring some of those items progression into another game? I think that is the key thing that will really bridge between all these different walled gardens of games. So interoperability is a big one. The other one that I you know say is secondary is, is the incentive structure. <clears throat> and we've spoken to many game studios about this before. Um, it's really tough for a long tail game studio to, to break into you know, the, the, the scene. And what they can't do is they don't have big marketing budgets to spend on acquisition. But what they can do is use NFTs 
as a retention tool to share ownership of the game. That way, you know, gamers feel like they have involvement in how the games are designed, the assets are designed, and the whole, you know, the whole trajectory of the company. And that works as a much better retention tool from a CAC um, cost of acquisition perspective. But just as a gamer, right, it'll be so much more interesting for you to actually have the experience of seeing how the game evolves, putting in your inputs. I think from a gamer perspective, it just flips the incentive structure and you know the fun of it differently. Um, but at its basis, what we believe at Atlas is really this concept of um, interoperable NFTs. Awesome. And I think that's a good segue to really deep dive into Ethos. Um, what exactly is Ethos? Could you break it down? Is it one big company of many games? Is it like a value chain or from one thing to another thing to the final game? Uh, and then I want to spend some time to talk about your security arm as well. Sure. I think over the last, you know, 12, 14 months, we have launched many different games and think of Atlas as a factory, right? We have found a playbook to launch quick games. So a couple of steps. First on the strategic side, we found a very quick way to validate certain like um, hypothesis in terms of game genres, target market, so on the strategy side. We've also got really, really efficient in spinning up games really, really quickly, right? Be it from an architecture perspective or is it from a native um, Unity or a game engine perspective, all the way to a UA, right? We've kind of like got the hang of how can we do like quick hypothesis testing um, from like doing A-B tests on like art, A-B tests on like even down to like the copies and the thumbnails. So over the last 12 to 14 months, we've got a really good hang of it. And, you know, we are continually pushing new games out, both from trying to push for user adoption ourselves, but also as a way for like partners to come on. So let's say, you know, some time ago, we spoke to the folks from Sanrio. So they hold the IP for Hello Kitty and, and Gudetama. And they want to say, hey, can we work with you guys as our entrance into Web3? We've also gotten pings from other Web2 and Web3 companies. Some Web2 companies, you know, um, they have maybe 30 to 50 million MEU. And they said, we want a way to move into Web3, but less so from a token or an exchange perspective. And gaming use cases came as kind of like that common denominator. So, you know, in the mission of improving adoption, we don't think that we can move a billion people ourselves. So we also want to be able to build the tools to enable other game studios, other partners to kind of like make this bridge with us. Got it. So is Ethos a, a gaming studio, publisher, distributor? Like, are you the one building the game yourselves or are you just helping create the NFTs or something like that? Yeah, so we take on the role of both a uh, in-house studio and also the, the distributor. Um, but we don't only distribute our own games. We work with other players on either distributing their existing games, or let's say we collaborate with another game studio to co-launch different games together. Got it. Got it. So if I'm a game studio and I say, okay, I have this IP, Elson, could you build a game from me from the ground up? You can do that. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, it has to fit in our theme and mm-hmm. we're going to make sure that there is synergy with, you know, our, our long-term roadmap. Got it. How many games do you have in your portfolio right now? Yeah, if it's just casual games alone, right now we're probably sitting at like 20 to 30. And then since then we've started on, let's say, virtual pet simulation games, um, Battle Showdown, which is like a mobile type of game. So there are stuff that we, we veer away from, but you know, in that space of casual games, virtual pet sims, um, that's kind of like our, our sweet spot where, where we've operated in. Got it. And are are these all mobile games specifically, or are you focusing on PC only games? 
Yeah, we started with both. In fact, most of our games started with desktop only or like web first. Mm-hmm. We wanted to take away the barrier of like logging in, authenticating and everything. Also because when we started with Battle Showdown, uh, most users are more familiar with using um, the, the Chrome MetaMask plugin for authentication. Um, but since then, right now, we're pushing towards like a more native experience. It's just a better gamer experience. Retention is better. So right now, we're going more for a mobile-first approach. Got it. And how are you thinking about uh, the future of ETHS? Is it 100 games uh, or is it? Uh, how are you measuring success? The number of games yeah. that you have, the number of wallets that you have? Yep. So I guess, you know, end of the day, it's still on usage and monetization. Uh, be less, it's less so on the number of games. Um, with one of our key investors, Makers Fund, they're a gaming portfolio. Even some of the other portfolios, they have a library of like 50 games, but most of the traffic really still follow the Pareto rule where like maybe you know, three or four games are their major ones. So, you know, talking about Atlas as a gaming factory, we've kind of got that magic sauce of being able to replicate success. So I think, you know, we're not looking for a hard number of like 100 games or 80 games. We're trying to find a sweet spot where every new game kind of like works on the, the successes and losses of the previous game. So I would say, you know, on how we can help accelerate our goal of hitting a billion users. And we don't think we can do it ourselves. So definitely partnership would be big on, on our agenda. All right. Any insights so far that you're able to share? What, what have you seen doing 20 games so far? Yeah, one, we've seen that there's a lot of bad actors in Web3. Um, yeah. For example, even if you do a quick like Twitter giveaway, right? Um, and there was once we did it really hackily uh, in a very hacky fashion. We used like, a Google form, right? You submit a few criteria for a Google form. And I remember opening the Google form and for once in my life, I saw running numbers happening on Google forms. Like the number of entries jumped from like a thousand to five thousand to ten thousand like before my eyes, right? I was like, that is cool. Um, and yeah, there's just a lot of bad actors, right? But thankfully the, the team's experience and expertise in security really helped us to combat a lot of things. So while that was a challenge initially, it also forced us to build a lot of like anti-botting and fraud management systems um, in place. Even when we do cash in, cash outs, they're like, um, models that kind of like do um, security checks on them. So it actually forces us to realize, got us closer to where the problem was. And imagine if a early studio that didn't have much funding, they put it out there, they want to do a giveaway and it just got, got drained really quickly. That also pointed us a little bit more into what are the needs of the market. That's also why we kind of started focusing a lot more resources on this like safety and building user trust. Um, so yeah, bad actors, but that drove us a bit closer to, you know, what the market needs. Um, it's also interesting just in the space of like the kind of games that we will, if you go from like DeFi games, um, you know, there's like chickens involved and like farms involved. There's a, a sunflower project on Polygon that, that got popular some time ago, but just how creative people are in the space, even the use of, of NFTs, NFTs, right? Um, I remember one that was like loot box NFTs. If there wasn't like any graphics or anything, there was just a few line of codes of, of the attributes and it got really, really popular. So I think from a creative perspective, it was just really, really cool to see what other people are looking at. Um, and of course, in the, in the chasm of how Web2 game studios wants to bridge into Web3, over the last few months, we probably talked to five of the largest game studios in, in, the, in the space right now. And it's just really, really encouraging to see that many of them are making hit reads and making that intentional move into Web3. But of course, you have other um, game studios that, that takes a very like, no, no, I'm not involved in, in Web3 approach. So I think 
you know, coming from the space is just a really exciting time to see how different businesses, you know, make decisions in, in, in this regard. Makes sense. Speaking of the security aspect and the, and the challenges that you have seen, can you talk more about the security arm of uh, EFLAS? What What is it? What kind of services are you providing? How, yeah. how do you see the future of it? Yeah, so I think this really stems from one of our co-founders expertise. So for Ari, um, a little bit of background, Ari did his PhD in cryptography and security in the late uh, 1990s. This is before the world cared about blockchain. So he was working on like e-cash and digital currencies. Um, but at that time, like nobody cared about Web3, right? So Ari went to do his um, rounds in the Web2. So he spent a number of years at Google, spent a number of time years at like Microsoft. Um, funny story, he was working on the Xbox Live team on like um, fraud management. And his team was in charge of making sure that the Xbox Live consoles were tamper-proof. I used to joke with him that I used to modify my Xbox so that when I played Halo, I can shoot through walls. <laughs> so many years ago, we had some interaction. But this whole push came about, hey, he was like looking through like what's happening in the space. And you know, it is really very nascent. For those of us that have, let's say, minted an NFT before, I wonder how many of us actually reads like the description on, on MetaMask when we're authenticating or allowing a transaction. Um, and you know, a, a personal story. So two months ago, I think I was doing a mint and we had to uh, burn an NFT to receive a new NFT. And when I was about to click uh, accept the transaction, the, the MetaMask prompt came up and it said that by signing this, you're actually going to grant access to all your NFTs in your wallet. And to put it into Web2 terms, imagine if you went to buy a bubble tea, as you tap your pay now card, what you're telling them is, hey, you have access to, you know, all my money in my bank account, but I trust that you're only going to take $5 off. That is the space that we're in Web3 right now. And to add on to that, when you sign certain contracts and you allow certain permissions, it's actually to perpetuity, right? So if you go to Etherscan, there's a um, sub page called like token approval. You can check which are the existing contracts that you have still granted access, even though you used them like six months ago. This is like the same thing that same property shop can have access to anything you they want um, months after the transaction. So that's why I say this is like how nascent the space is. So there's a couple of products that we're working on in this space. Um, from a security perspective, there's like uh, a user flow, right? There is prevention, there is asset management, there's recovery. We are working more on the, the second half of it. So on prevention, you know, there are some solutions where you can do a quick security audit on a particular contract address. It gives you a credibility or like a trust score, right? Um, in simple words, maybe like a red, orange, green button, and it tells you how safe this site is. Um, there are existing solutions there. We're focusing our product on the middle and the last one. In the middle on the asset management, what we're building on in, in a simple one-liner is how do we provide security of a cold wallet to a hot wallet? So hot wallets, those that you know, interact with contracts, is plugged on, quote-unquote, to the internet. Cold wallets are those that it's supposed to be detached of the internet, so there's no way that there could be any vulnerabilities, right? Um, but we have kind of worked on the way that we can provide the security of a cold wallet within a hot wallet, something what we call like a security enclave, so that it segments out a portion of your hot wallet assets to make sure that you know it's bulletproof and you really, really have very tight controls before you allow the movement of funds in there. So in the case, let's say we allocated 80% of your assets in this cold wallet and 20% in the hot wallet. If there happened to be a vulnerability, at least your 80% of your core funds are protected. 
So that's the product on the asset management, all the way down to the recovery, right? Let's say you actually lost that 20%. There is still a way for us to front run that transaction. Um, and because a lot of these transactions are all on chain and the speed of transaction is also tightly correlated to like the amount of gas or like where you are in the queue, right? So what we have managed to work on is something called like, there's something called like the mempool. That's where most of these transactions like are happening and being like validated. What we found a way is to kind of like front run these um, transactions, right? So a simple way to think about it is, let's say if, you know, Nigel, you interacted with a malicious contract, you accidentally gave permission for them to drain your wallet. Before the bad actor can drain your wallet, we find a way to drain it and shift it to another of your safety wallet. So, you know, in that value chain um, prevention, we are in asset management and also on the recovery front. Um, and yeah, it has been a very, very exciting space hearing about, you know, yes, we do user research and market validation, hearing about how people have gotten scammed. Um, in fact, two weeks ago, there was a CNA news article about, you know, how someone got scammed of like $400,000 in a crypto scam. And we managed to go on a user interview call with him and just hear about his experience. And, you know, he was an IT professional. He did comm science. He was an entrepreneur, but still, you know, some of these scams are really, really elaborate. So it was a very pressing problem that we felt compelled to kind of like be part of the solution. Um, long story there, but hopefully they know that was a very like, good understanding of, of where we where we sit in the whole value chain. Oh, super interesting. Uh, this recovery part is very interesting for me as well. Like my understanding of the space is once your keys are gone, your password is gone, that, that's it, right? Like you're literally uh, out of control of your wallet. Interesting that there's a way to front run the transaction um, and try and recover. Uh, I think that's a very interesting innovation. How does all of this connect with the gaming sector of Ethless? Like, how were these the key insights that you found with gaming studios uh, that were that were pain points? And are these solutions like um, off the shelf things that you hope to offer to studios when they try and partner with you? Hmm. Yeah. So I mean, back to the mission of Ethless, right? Yeah. We want to be that bridge to help move like the next billion people. Yeah. So games on that one side is, you know, it catches people's attention. It's a very low barrier use case. But no matter how fun is it, like you will have to still solve for the trust and, and safety issue, right? That's where we felt compelled, you know, can we bring on the, the security aspect to help the industry, you know, be a bit more safe, especially with what has happened in the last six to nine months with crypto. Mm. Like I think consumer and, and regulatory confidence has just really taken a, 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 a step backwards, right? So I think, you know, we felt compelled that this is a problem worth solving. And if you think about it on the gaming front and on the security front, it is really how do we build trust and fun to help bridge the space. And ultimately, when games are ready to make that pivot into Web3, you know, our security product can be there to, you know, be at the right place at the right time. And we want to lower the, the barriers of entry, right? For a game studio or large gaming companies, they want to make sure that security is not compromised and their players can can feel safe in the space. So kind of like we see those complementary areas and really the security product is where as we're bringing out the games ourselves and trying to push for user adoption, we realize that you know that is the core thing to solve for before anything else can be built on top, right? This is akin to you know starting out any new like town or any new country. Like you have to build the roads, you have to build light, electricity before you know people, tourists can come in. 
So that's where we see ourselves, you know, helping and, and in like maturing the, the industry. Interesting. Okay, so I probably made a mistake. I thought that you were building a security product specifically for a gaming focus mindset, but rather is and is this correct? <laughs> it's actually two different products. Like one is gaming, one is security. It doesn't necessarily need to mix, but the core thing is either one or both will help with onboarding the next player. Yeah, I mean we're not tied to just gaming assets because end of the day, um, gaming assets or like other digital assets are complementary um, formats. So as we build out the gaming use case, we think that you know security in the general uh, on-chain transaction space is, is still important and integral. Interesting. Let me try to be a little bit critical and double click on that then. Yeah. Um, do you think gamers care enough about security? Like what, what made you think that security is just so important, uh, whereas gamers just want to play and be entertained? Yeah, uh, I think that's a good point, right? In fact, <clears throat> I would like further that point. Um, mm-hmm. Even like, would gamers care whether it's on Web3 or Web2? Or like, mm-hmm. would gamers care if it's on Polygon or if it's on like another L2 or L1? Like no one plays Clash of Clans and like, I wonder if they are on um, Google Cloud or they're on mm-hmm. AWS, right? That less so influences their decision. So mm-hmm. the long run, I don't think that, you know, what protocol or chain matters to the users. Of course, to the company, it matters a lot more, right? So that's like kind of taking that conversation one step further. Um, but on security, I would say in a mature market, users care less about it. Right now, when you make a online payment, right? You don't think about, okay, are they provided by Stripe? Um, do they have any certification? Because more or less, you expect some certain amount of like trustworthiness. But imagine in the early days where let's say Zappos first, you know, sold their first 10 shoes, right? That's when people really were a lot more skeptical, skeptical and hesitant on making a credit card transaction. So I think, you know, in terms of the maturity of the market, early stages, security is probably a bit more core to the conversation. At a later stage, um, you know, people are a lot more accepting and just kind of like take it that security should be a, a mandatory feature in any product already. Got it. Interesting. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Um, was there anything else you wanted to share about uh, Plus or your security arm? No, I hope that this was helpful, um, especially, you know, I was chatting with you, Nigel, earlier, just to understand a little bit more about the demographic of the users, uh, of the listeners. Sounds like 50%, you know, are web three curious, 50% in the space. So, like I mentioned earlier, you know, this movement of like a billion people is not something we can do by ourselves. So, we're always open to collaboration. Um, if, let's say, on the gaming front, you're a web, you know, like a game studio or you're flying gaming solutions and you want a partner, happy to have discussions there. If on the security arm, you're a wallet provider, you're an exchange or a DeFi protocol, and you think that, you know, um, be able to work with another party on enabling a trusted secure platform is important to you, feel free to, to reach out as well. And, you know, I don't have all the magic um, answers to the space. It is a rapidly, rapidly evolving space. Nobody could have predicted that one of the largest exchanges could, you know, go bust in like a week. So I think collaborating and, and co-building in the space right now is, is really, really important. And how can we, how can companies work together to you know, restore confidence? And it's a nice space to be, nice time to be in the space right now because people who are interested in Web3 actually believe in it. People who are looking for roles or jobs in the space are not here just for the hype. So actually from a um, company perspective, it's really a, a good time to build, a good time to like consolidate talent and companies. So yeah, for those of you who are kind of like 
on the fences and thinking about the space, you know, just, just be a user, play more about the space, read more, understand more about it. And yeah, when the time comes, you can uh, make that decision. But for now, I think it's a really nice like, builder season. Yeah, I want to underline that point, uh, the, the builder season. So as you mentioned, it's a bear market. Um, crypto is kind of down. There's been a lot of chaos in the past few months. Why should somebody in Web2, somebody who's just crypto curious, bother or take a risk to jump into the crypto market today? What is What do you mean by it's builder season? What, what, should, what, what is there to look forward to right now? Yeah, I think it, it stems back to just um, interest and passion. You know, if like monetary rewards or like just like the hype was, was your main reason, it's probably not the right time. Um, I would say this, right? Being in Web3 right now feels a little bit like being at the age of an unexplored seabed. Uh, when people see that, some people, you know, fleet up to the surface, some people think that it's exciting and want to go down deeper. And ultimately, it depends on everybody's life stage, right? Are they looking for growth? Are they looking for comfort? Are they looking for exploration? So I'd say you know, this is a very interesting space for both a company perspective, but also from um, quote-unquote an employee perspective. From a company perspective, like I mentioned earlier, is a good natural filter for people who are truly, truly passionate about the space. For the builder perspective, from an employee perspective, this is where you can really use the bear market to sense out which companies are still strong in the in the in this time. Either one is like good financial prudence, um, two, they have a strong product, three, they have a good team, they have a strong base of network and investors. So I say this is a necessary period to kind of like weed out um, bad actors or just like quote unquote less well-managed companies. And hopefully this you know, strengthens the industry and we will be able to see um, adoption in, in the long run. Awesome. Um, very, very good points. How do people get in touch? What channels should they check? Yeah, so I think, you know, it really depends. If you have crypto Twitter, um, is Atlas underscore official. You know, a lot of um, the co-founders, uh, Twitter handles are tagged there. If you're on LinkedIn and not on Twitter yet, and you're interested about it, definitely be on crypto Twitter. That's where like the, the front line of the news happens. If not, you can find us at Atlas on, on LinkedIn. Um, happy to connect. And if you're already in the space, happy to explore ways to work together. Awesome. All those will be in the show notes below. Thank you, Austin. It was very nice chatting with you. I, I definitely learned a lot. Sounds good. I definitely enjoyed the conversation. Thanks a lot, Nigel.